Thank you, brother. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters, if you would turn your Bibles to the book of Joel in the Old Testament, the book of Joel, we're going to look at verses 15 through 20 today, 15 through 20. Joel chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Once you found your place in the scripture, please stand to your feet as we read God's word together. Joel chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. God's word says this. Woe because of that day. For the day of the Lord is near and will come as devastation from the Almighty. Hasn't the food been cut off before your eyes? Join gladness from the house of your God. The seeds lie shriveled in their casings. The storehouses are in ruin and the granaries are broken down because the grain has withered away. How the animals groan. The herds of cattle wander in confusion since they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep and goats suffer punishment. I call to you, Lord, for fire has consumed the pastures of the wilderness, and flames have devoured all the trees of the orchard. Even the wild animals cry out to you, for the riverbeds are dried up, and fire has consumed the pastures of the wilderness. Heavenly Father, we come to your word now. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would illuminate your word and interpret it for us. Make it plain to us that we might know Christ in the word this morning, that we might know what, this, what is going on in Judah, what it has to do with the world and the church, and most importantly, what it has to do with Jesus Christ, our Savior. Father, while these events are far removed from us, Lord, they are meant to help us to understand something very real, something very near and approaching a day for some of us that will be a wonderful day, and a day for others, it will be the most miserable day that they have ever experienced. And so, Lord, cause us to pay attention, awaken us from physical sleepiness and tiredness and long nights, last night, whatever may be keeping us from focusing, God, just help our flesh to get past that so that we may hear you and meet with you now by your preached word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The sermon is titled, Humanity's Affliction, the Tribulation of Judah, further subtitled, The Day of the Lord. Humanity's Affliction, the Tribulation of Judah, the Day of the Lord. December 21st, 2012, that was the day when the Mayan calendar ended. I don't know much about Mayan calendars, but I do remember that day because the buzz around town was that the world was going to end that day. Maybe you remember it. I was at work. One of my bosses came up to me and asked me if the world was going to end that day. And I said, it sure is. So I thought I would come to work today and spend all my time with you guys. <laughs> Actually, I didn't say that, okay? But that's what I wanted to say. I mean, if we all knew that today was our last day, that's the last place we would be going, right? Well, we ended up having a good conversation. He knew I was a pastor. So I thought... Uh, so I gave him the inside scoop, and I think he, that's what he thought. I had the inside scoop of what God was going to do and when Jesus was going to come back. And that's really what he was getting at. He knew that I wasn't Mayan. Um, he knew that I was a believer in Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. So he wanted to talk about some of this stuff since it was the hot topic that day. So I shared the gospel with him, and I shared the return of Jesus Christ. 
And now Jesus was coming to judge sinners, but he was also coming to save those who believed that he died and rose again for them. The end of the world didn't come that day, even though many panicked. In fact, the end of the world as we know it, according to Scripture, will not just be judgment. It will actually be a refashioning of the world, a restoration, a resurrection, if you will. The old will definitely pass away, and the new will come. In 2 Peter 3, the apostle uses the flood of Noah. We all know that event. And he uses that as something that foreshadows and typifies the day of the Lord. Indeed, that flood was a day of the Lord. We're told that in Noah's day, the planet perished, and it passed away with the flood. It was done away with. Yet we know that the globe was still here. The planet was still here. That even though God judged and destroyed the world, we saw that a new world came about from what was left of creation. And in 2 Peter 3, we're also told that the heavens and earth that now exist are not awaiting a flood, but they are awaiting a fire to come. Not water, but fire. In the same way as the flood judgment, I believe that the current world will perish by the judgment fire of God. But that which is left, like in the world of the flood, will be made into a new creation. Redemption is coming, not just to our bodies, but to the planet. Just like there will be so the, just like there was some continuity between Christ's uh, old body and new body, so there will be continuity between our old bodies and our resurrection bodies. And I believe the same holds true for the planet as we know it. It longs for redemption, not annihilation. We are not so corrupted by sin, nor is earth so corrupted that God has to start over completely with fresh matter for either our resurrection bodies or the world, the creation. And that's what rescue and redemption are partly about. It's about saving and salvaging what could and should have been damned forever. We'll have different bodies for sure, but just like, again, Jesus' body, there'll be continuity from old to new. The same is true as creation. In fact, Scripture says that the sun, the moon, and the stars will actually be done away with in the new creation. That is, heavenly bodies, because there will be no need for them, since the Lord will be our light. Revelation 21 speaks of this. Second Peter 3 speaks of this. But the earth, again, will be refashioned and recreated, even if a measure of fire and destruction come to it. Malachi, if you remember, speaks of the day of the Lord being like an oven in which rebels against God will be so consumed with fire that neither root nor branch will be left. There'll be ashes under our feet. Now, I believe that's referring to a thoroughness or a completeness of God's judgment, but it may just be, we'll know when it happens, but it may just be that the Lord consumes all wickedness and memories of evil and actual fire before sending unbelievers to the lake of fire, and then perhaps he just repaints the canvas of earth and refashions it for us. The events I've been talking about can all be summed up in the day of the Lord, but there is more to this day than meets the eye. Today we're going to spend some time talking about it, okay? So at any given point, if you feel tired, because there will be a lot of information dispensed, just Squint your eyes, you know, rub your hands, stand up, go get a drink of water, whatever you got to do. But what we're going to learn today is going to help us with the rest of the Joel, because Joel mentions the day of the Lord quite a bit. We can't cover everything about it, but we're going to cover a lot. So what is this day about? What does it have to do with this locust invasion that we've been talking about? 
What does it have to do with the church? What does it have to do with the rest of the world? And more importantly, what does it have to do with Christ? Let's dig in and find out. Okay, I'm going to give a brief recap of Joel and where we've been so far. So far, we've been looking back at the devastation that has taken place in Judah. Something terrible happened to them and as a result, as a result of God's judgment for their national sin. But we don't know what this sin is. This judgment from God has come in the form of a locust invasion like no other. They were to reflect upon this and to respond appropriately to God through weeping and wailing and through a national fast and through a national assembly before the Lord, before the king's palace, that is the temple of God, before God's palace. So that's what they were to do, to repent and to cry out to God for forgiveness, for restoration, because their land has been decimated, and they were to ask for mercy and grace. Everyone was to participate, everyone from the priests to the older citizens to all the inhabitants of the land, this land that God gave them to be a blessing to them. In this locust invasion, it had ruined their food source, but even worse than their food source, it had rendered their worship rituals defunct. They could not do what God called them to do in the Old Testament covenant. The worship system that God designed in the Mosaic Covenant was no longer functioning since many of their worship rituals required grain offerings drink and drink offerings or libations. The people can bring no offerings to the priests who then offer them up to the Lord because the crops are devastated. They have nothing to bring. And the priests could do no work. On top of that, they could receive no income, no food, because a portion of these offerings were supposed to be reserved for their physical needs, because that was their full-time job in Israel. But God calls Judah to look back at their punishment and judgment that is from him, and he calls them to be stirred up, to awaken from their torpidity, to be awakened from their slumber, their spiritual stupor. And he's alerting to them to the fact with this devastation, and through the prophet Joel, that judgment is upon them. All right, judgment is upon them. They have broken covenant. His afflictions and his curses were upon them instead of his abundance and instead of his blessings. Yet the present trauma they are experiencing by the hand of the Lord was meant to point forward to future tribulation on the horizon, something even worse than a locust invasion. This future tribulation, this future trouble, this future judgment would not just be for sinful Israel, but it would be for all sinful nations and peoples in this world. This tribulation to come is called the day of the Lord. And so this morning, we're going to examine the day of the Lord. And uh, first of all, we're going to look at Judah's tribulation, the timing of the day of the Lord, the timing of the day of the Lord. Verse 15 says, Woe because of that day, for the day of the Lord is near and will come as devastation from the Almighty. Whatever the day of the Lord is, they were to be aware of it, and it was coming near. Now, briefly, let me just say this so there's no confusion. We call Sunday what day? The Lord's Day. Because he rose again from the dead on that day, and we celebrate that resurrection every day. The day of the Lord is not the Lord's day. Two different terms, although they sound very familiar, so I just want to make that clear. Sunday is the Lord's day. We're speaking of something different when we say the day of the Lord. 
And Joel says, woe for that day. Not woe like when you see something like a big fireworks display. Woe, not that woe, okay? That's W-H-O-A. We're talking about woe here, W-O-E. It's an interjection. It means alas, which is a word that we all use, right? No? Okay. Alas. Well, it's an expression of grief or concern. We say, oh, my goodness. Oh, no. It's that kind of situation. It's not a term meant for happy occasions. It serves as a word to remind of something ominous, something serious. This is a serious day. Alas, grieve over this day that is coming. Not only is this day a cause for great concern, but Joel says it is near. It is near. And that's why they were to be concerned. The timing of its arrival is close at hand, around the corner, so to speak. It's not a day of procrastination. It can come upon them at any moment. Indeed, Joel says, it will come. It is a certainty. And so it's a serious day, a near day, a certain day. And we learn that from verse 15. This destruction comes from who? The Almighty. Now, this is not discernible in English, because... The Old Testament was primarily written in Hebrew, right? But the words devastation and almighty are very closely related in Hebrew. And they are meant to be a playoff of each other. Remember, this is Hebrew poetry, okay? Showed is the Hebrew word for devastation or destruction. Showed, all right? Shaddai is the Hebrew word that is commonly translated as almighty. You may have known of one of God's names as El Shaddai. Anybody familiar with that? There was a song in the 70s or 80s written by Amy Grant called El Shaddai. Um, I don't know how it sounds, but I did know that, all right? So Hebrews, uh, Hebrew scholars think that Shaddai, or maybe it could, I don't know. I'm not a scholar, but they think it could originate from a different word that means mountain, as in the God of the mountain or the God of Mount Sinai. But other people think Shaddai and Shod, they come from the same root word, Shaddad, Shod and Shaddai come from Shaddad. Therefore, they carry similar meaning. Shod means devastation. And so it could be that the words sound alike, Shod and Shaddai, or it could be that, plus they have a similar meaning. So in English, we might say devastation is coming from the devastator. Make sense? Destruction is coming from the destroyer. If you heard that, you would know that the author is intentionally trying to use a play on words to help you pay attention. Whichever is the case, this play on words is meant to serve as a function to get attention via poetry. Whether they're meant to sound the same or mean the same or both, it doesn't change the fact that one is to sit up because woe for this day of the Lord, which is near and certain. Now, as I have been wrestling through Joel, I, I want to tell you, as a student of Scripture, I have been tortured, okay? Joel is probably the hardest book that I've ever preached through. And as I read through it, I'm asking so many questions because some things don't seem to align up right. And, and uh, you may not ask these questions if you're just listening and not reading through Joel. But if you read through Joel, some of these things are going to come up. And so I'm going to ask some questions to help you uh, not get answers from you, but I'm going to I just want us to ask questions about the text because it's always good to ask questions whenever you're studying a text, okay? Here's what I've been facing. This nearness and this certainty of this day that's coming presents some questions for us to pose and process. Some I'm still wrestling with. When Joel mentions the day of the Lord, 
Is he referring to the final day of the Lord when Christ comes again? It's a question I asked. If so, then how can this nearness hold true? It's coming and it's near. But yet here we are thousands of years later. The threat of nearness, wouldn't you think that it has to hold true or else God is lying? Make sense what I'm asking? It's near, but why is it so far? Even for us, it seems like, okay? But we know um, that it's an end time event, this day of the Lord. Well, ultimately, this means that the day of the Lord can't just be a one-time end-time event. It can't just be a one-time end-time event. It has to have multiple fulfillments in time with a final event. Unless, and this is where my brain started going crazy, unless the threat is meant to be conditional, meaning it's right around the corner unless you repent. And if you do repent, then that day won't come to you. Started asking that question. But that doesn't seem to be how Joel's presenting this nearness because he says it is certain, right? Ah, it is coming. So it can't be conditional because he said it is coming. So there's a sense in which the near day of the Lord can't be stopped. It's right around the corner. Okay, back to square one. What's going on here? We know that Joel's statements are also meant to serve as a warning to Israel. That's grace. Can, can I tell you, there's a lot of unbelievers out there that have this understanding that all of the Old Testament is just damnation and wrath. There's a lot of that in the Old Testament. There's a lot of grace. That is a wrong understanding of Scripture because when you warn someone about danger to come, isn't that a good thing? Isn't it the grace of God that he would warn Israel or Judah that judgment is coming and that it can be averted? Right? So that's, that's how we should see this. Okay? The day of judgment can be averted. Right? If they repent, blessings can be restored. This is what Joel says uh, soon in the text if you read a little bit later. There's a hope of restoration and salvation presented later in Joel if they would repent, okay? So if this day is certain and it's near, are we to assume Judah didn't repent and that's why it came upon them? That's a question that we might be asking. But what's crazy is later in Joel, if you keep reading it, you see God became jealous for Israel and showed his love and that he was going to give them restoration, so they must have repented. So what is going on? This can be very confusing as you're reading through Joel. If they did repent and were restored, how can that day still be near and certain? Ugh, back to square one, right? Just keep going back and trying to untangle this day of the Lord scenario. Well, maybe the day came. Maybe Israel did suffer the day of the Lord and then God restored them after. Maybe it's also possible, maybe Israel repented before this near day of the Lord, and maybe the judgment came to others instead of them. It's very difficult to parse out, and we're going to get into that a little bit more and try to make more sense of it. All right, now I'm just posing questions that we want to try to answer, okay? Here's what I do know. Here's what I know about God's judgment. If you remember when I preached through Jonah, I, uh, Jonah says, and he preached to Nineveh, which was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, the most powerful empire in the world at that time, Nineveh as the capital, wicked, horrible people, oppressive, torturing, murderous. Jonah goes to them, and he says, God's wrath is coming with certainty very soon, 40 days. It's coming. Yet they repented, and it was averted. And that judgment didn't come upon them. It didn't come upon them, even though Joel pronounced its nearness. But later, you see in the prophecy of Nahum, I preached through that one too, 
about 80 to 100 years later, God actually judged Nineveh because their repentance was short-lived. So all I'm saying is I do know the character of God based on Scripture. If you repent, you can be given grace and mercy. And if not, you'll receive judgment from God. Okay? Our God is a merciful God. It seems to me that in regards to God's judgment, it's coming to sinners. But it can be averted. Blessing and restoration can be had in Christ, whether it's Israel or foreign nations. Now, a couple things. Because the dating of the Joel, uh, the book of Joel, it is very hard to pin down, and there's opinions all over the place, and they all swear they're right, okay? It's all over the place, okay? And, and it's really just what you find more persuasive than others. But the truth stands that judgment is coming to the world. But because the date is hard to pin down, because it's hard to pin down, it's hard to tell what is Joel referring to here historically, all right? But the truth stands. There are near judgments. There's a final judgment. The day of the Lord is certain. Destruction from the Almighty has come to the land of Israel, as we've seen in Joel. Destruction from the Almighty has come, as we saw in the days of Noah. Destruction from the Almighty came to the city of Nineveh. Destruction from the Almighty came to Assyria, came to Babylon. It came to Jerusalem in 70 AD. Destruction came to the Romans. No sinner is safe from the destroyer. No sinner is safe from Almighty God. Destruction comes to all sinners. Daniel teaches us through his dream that the most powerful nations and empires that have ever existed will all come tumbling down under the judgment of God. The only nation that will survive and exist is the nation that belongs to Christ Jesus. And of his kingdom, there will be what? No end. What's interesting about Joel's assertion that, that, that this day will come is that later in Joel, we see God dispensing mercy and restoration. But this day still comes to the nations. So the day is coming with all certainty. It's devastation, which is certain, but it just might be averted by some. So even though Joel is going to bring down the hammer on the day of the Lord, all hope is not lost, according to Joel. Some can be saved, some can be spared. Whether this day happened in time or whether we are waiting its finality, all of humanity, all of humanity, including us, the church, will be included in this day. Right now in our text, we're just trying to understand if this day happened, if it is happening, if it is to come, how soon, all that stuff. Trying to figure it out can be tough, but we must understand better what is meant by the term, the day of the Lord. So we've asked some questions. Let's try to understand or ascertain a meaning of this term, the day of the Lord. Let's define it a little bit more. What is the day of the Lord? Now, first, I'm going to try to keep it simple. And I'm going to try to complicate it up and muddy it up so you have no idea what we're talking about, okay? That's what I want to do, leave frustrated. I don't want to do that, all right? But let me provide a simple definition, and then hopefully you'll see this played out through the rest of the sermon. This is the definition I came up with to help you, because some people just know how to complicate things, okay? It is a recurring event that has its final fulfillment in the return of Jesus Christ, where his majesty is exalted as he restores creation, finalizes our salvation, and judges unbelievers. 
For sake of brevity and clarity, that's my definition. Let me read it again. It is a recurring, and I don't suspect this will find its way into theological dictionaries, okay? But it is a recurring event that has its final fulfillment in the return of Jesus Christ, where his majesty is exalted as he restores creation, finalizes our salvation, and judges unbelievers. Can you understand that part so far, right? We're going to take it bit by bit. So it is a day that has happened on a few occasions and is yet to happen in finality. The problem with the term, the day of the Lord, is not necessarily the term, but our understanding of it. We tend to think of it as a singular event shoved off into the end times when Christ comes again, and that is only it. That's how I was taught about the day of the Lord as a child, as a teenager uh, in the faith. Okay, Think of it like the term Pharaoh. Okay, We know Pharaoh, right? But Pharaoh wasn't one guy. We know about the Pharaoh that went up against Moses, or that Moses went up against, but that wasn't his name. It was a title. There was a Pharaoh before Moses. Remember Joseph's Pharaoh? A different guy, not the same one. That one died, and another Pharaoh came along. In fact, some experts think that Egypt had 170 Pharaohs, so it's a term or a title. In the similar way, the term day of the Lord doesn't mean there's one day. So you look at that term day, and you think, oh, it's a one-time event. But rather, it is a title of an event where God comes to judge or to save sinners. So if we understand the day of the Lord this way, we'll see that there were past days of the Lord, all right? In Scripture at times, present days of the Lord and future days of the Lord, depending upon whose perspective you're looking from. So let's look at a few that are mentioned in Scripture, and let's try to add to our understanding of this definition, and we'll see that it's supported in Scripture, okay? So... We asked some questions. We're going to ascertain this term, but now let's appreciate the scriptures. Amos 5, verses 18 through 20. The verse isn't up on the screen, but the references to it and what it teaches us about the day of the Lord. It presents, Amos does, presents the day of the Lord as a future event from their perspective. It's an event of darkness, not of light. A day of gloom, not brightness. He presents this, and why does he present it this way? He presents it as a rebuke to the Israelites who thought the day of the Lord would only be good times. It would be a day of rejoicing only, a day of light, a day they expected God to overcome all their enemies in this day. It is very well known, right, that God saved Israel from Egypt. We remember that event, right, the Exodus? And ever since that, they refer to that day of salvation as the day the day that you delivered us, the day that you rescued us. And so the Lord began, Israel began to see the day of the Lord as only deliverance from their enemies. But Amos brings balance to this lopsided understanding of the day of the Lord. He says, Israel, your own sins will be judged by God on this day. And God will use a foreign nation to do this. Now, Amos was written in about 750 BC. And it wasn't long after that the Assyrians came upon them and destroyed the northern ten tribes and severely hurt the other two. But the northern ten tribes are are no more, fulfilling God's promise to bring his day upon them. So from their perspective, in Amos is future. From our perspective, it's a past event. Are you with me? I hope so. Okay. Lamentations 1.12 
It points back to the Babylonian conquest. Okay? The Babylonian conquest of Israel as the day of the Lord. The prophet Jeremiah lamented this day that it had come and gone. It was a past event from his perspective. So there's this day of the Lord. In Malachi 3, when I preached through that, we saw that the day of the Lord okay, was multifaceted. Malachi gives us more information about this. He says it's a personal coming of God to the second temple. So Jesus' coming is, in essence, part of the day of the Lord. When he would come to save some within Israel while he judged others. The day of the Lord, this day of the Lord, we see takes place after the Assyrian day of the Lord, after the Babylonian day of the Lord, right? Where God judges Israel. So God in Jesus was coming to deliver and to damn, to purge and to punish. Historically, we know that Jesus came to the temple to save some, all right, in Israel through his salvific work as he inaugurated the covenant to all nations, the new covenant. And he judged some, all right, and he used the Romans to sack Jerusalem and destroy the temple, all right, showing that they were out of covenant with Jesus Christ, out of covenant with God. And this is consistent with how God dealt with rebellious Israel whenever they broke covenant with God. It's how God deals with rebellious humanity and the nations and the empires. And so we see that there's good news in the day of the Lord, just as there is bad news in the day of the Lord. And these days of the Lord happened in the past. But we also noted in Malachi 4 that the day of the Lord or Jesus' coming was broken up into a couple parts, meaning his first coming and his second coming. There's a final coming, a final day of the Lord in which all evildoers will be made stubble by the fire and the wrath of God. And we sang about that in that song that we sang today, but for you who fear my name. Okay? They will be set ablaze or judged. But for those who fear the name of God... The Lord will bring total healing and restoration. And so we saw good news in the day of the Lord. Now, while this promise was to Old Testament Israel, all right, to Judah, this coming of restoration, we find that those promises hold true for us that are in Gentile nations, since these promises cross over from Old Covenant to New Covenant. All right? God's New Covenant people are, is comprised of both Gentiles and Jews. And so now this promise of a day of the Lord for us is coming as is coming to us as well. And so we have this we have this already not yet tension that many of you know about in scripture in which the day of the Lord has come but it hasn't come in finality. It's here but it's not here yet. Just like our salvation, we're saved but we're being saved and we will be saved. There's this tension of already not yet happening. It's been inaugurated, but not consummated. Started, but not finished. So let me just tell you that these prophecies, many of them concerning the days of the Lord, were written before they happened. If you don't trust the character of God, then that's on you. right? If you're not a believer. Because historically, it can be verified that these things were prophesied about, and then they happened. And therefore, you're wanting to know if Christ is coming again. All you got to do is look back and say, did God keep his word in the Old Testament? And you say, yes, he did. He fulfilled those days of the Lord. Therefore, you can trust that there is a final day of the Lord coming. You ought to repent. You ought to trust him for salvation. Okay? So, so far, we've seen that the day of the Lord has referred to at least three historical events where God judged Israel via a foreign nation. Some of these were future events from their perspective. Some were past events. Obadiah 
describes this day as a day in which Edom will be judged and destroyed for how they mistreated Israel. We learned in Malachi that this already happened to them. They were brought down never to arise again. God didn't choose, we saw, he didn't choose his special affection and to set it upon Edom like he did with Israel. Israel was chosen. So Malachi teaches us that the day of the Lord already happened for Edom, as Obadiah prophesied. But Obadiah also describes this day as a day of judgment for all nations, not just Edom. And so from our perspective, there's the sense in which the day of the Lord has come to Edom. They were judged, but there's this dual reality that the day of the Lord is still yet to come. Isaiah 2, verses 10 through 22, it presents this day as a day in which to hide from God's terror as the proud are brought low. It is a day when God is exalted. It is a day when all of man's greatest accomplishments are brought low before the majesty and the splendor of God. If you think you have something to boast in, that, will, that idol will be tossed out of your hands on the day of judgment. It is a day when sinners toss their idols and false gods to the side and flee from God when he comes to terrify the earth with his wrath against sinners for their ungodliness. And then the New Testament authors add to our understanding of this day. Philippians 1.6 uses the term day of Christ instead of the day of the Lord. Which is one way, if you didn't know, that you can argue for the deity of Jesus Christ, that he is God. The New Testament authors indicate that he is by the changing of the title of day of the Lord to the day of Christ. Okay, But in that verse, we're told that this day of the Lord, it is a day in which he completes in us, finalizes in us the work that he started. Is that a good day? Yes. It is a hopeful day for Christians when our salvation is finalized, when we are once and for all glorified, and we are returned to the status of perfect image bearers of God. What a day of rejoicing that will be. 1 Thessalonians 5.2 speaks of the suddenness of this day and the return of Christ. And as we mentioned in 2 Peter 3 and Revelation 21, we know that creation is going to be renewed in this event this is all part of the day when Christ comes again. And so as we see in looking at all these scriptures, the day of the Lord is so much more than what I was taught as a kid. I was taught one perspective of this day, the future view of judgment. Anybody here know what I'm talking about or understand that, that kind of teaching? That it's all in the future. It's only judgment. Did we, we just read some scriptures, and you can go look them up to see that the day of the Lord is much more rich and a much bigger doctrine than maybe we were initially taught. It's true that there is a future and a final judgment, but there's more to it, as we've seen. All right? It, and, and we see that it's an event that recurs over and over until there's a final one. All right? So we can say that there are many days of the Lord with a threat of the final day with the hope of salvation for those who know Christ and the threat of judgment for those, okay? Now, I just want to tell you that in Genesis 3.15, we have this, the gospel seed where one who is born of a woman would come and destroy the works of Satan and defeat Satan. And from there, we see this expansion, okay? 
the day of the Lord, seeds are in Genesis as well. In the day that you eat, you will what? Surely die. We're going to see more. The day of the Lord, its seed is further explained in the Sabbath day. We're going to get to that, all right? But there's some amazing things coming. I just want you to see that these themes, they don't just start in minor prophets. They start way back in creation, okay? Applying the message, all right? Well, let's just revisit this definition, okay? Again, the day of the Lord is a recurring event, all right, is a recurring event that has, uh, where did my definition go? I didn't memorize it, all right? Fooey on me. There it is. It is a recurring event that has its final fulfillment in the return of Jesus Christ, where his majesty is exalted as he restores creation, finalizes our salvation, and judges unbelievers. And that's what we derive from just some of those scriptures. And there's others, okay? It's, it, it can concern Israel. It can concern other nations, um, it can be past, it can be present, it can be future, it can concern the new earth, new creation, all right? It can be temporal and local, it can be global. It's so rich that we have to understand it with that definition, okay? That is why I gave that definition. So let's apply the message so far. Is, is Joel talking about something that has happened, something that is soon to happen, or something that will close out current history of mankind where eternity is ushered in? Well, it can be tough to answer that because this event is mentioned several times in the book of Joel. And we're going to look at each instance separately, all right, since we know that the day of the Lord can potentially refer to past, present, or future stuff. All right? You may not know it. I haven't told you till now. But the day of the Lord is actually the central theme of the book of Joel. It's not the locust invasion. That's That's indicators of the day of the Lord. And I'll explain more about that. The theme of Joel is the day of the Lord. And as you read Joel, it can sometimes be hard to discern if it's far future, if it's near future, or if it is coming on. Because again, the date is hard to pin down, so you can't tie it to just the Assyrians or just the Babylonians or any other event. It can be hard to nail it down 100%. Okay, And so... Um, Again, there are those who place this dating uh, of the writing all over the place, but we see that the day of the Lord is certain and it is coming. Nevertheless, we must remember that none of that changes the essence of Joel's message. Again, Joel is Hebrew poetry. It's meant to use images and language in order to incite your feelings and passions, to move you along, and to get you out of torpidity, to get you out of slumber, to get you to move towards God. It's meant to arouse sadness. And, and stir up guilt in order that you would turn back to God so that he will bless you. That's what God is trying to accomplish in the life of Judah. That's really the big idea behind these warnings of the day of the Lord. It causes fear and trembling before God so that humanity will turn to Christ for salvation before it's too late so that they can be blessed for all eternity. And God desires to bless Israel. He desires to bless us. But it doesn't come under any condition. It comes only when we are in right covenant with him. For Israel, normally, before Christ came, that would mean a return to an adherence of the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. When they broke covenant with God and faced his judgment, if they were to be restored to blessing, they had to go back to Mosaic covenant living, the old covenant. Now that Christ has come, and they are not all properly in covenant with God, coming to proper covenant with God is not going back to the old covenant, but coming to Christ as the mediator of a new and better covenant. 
And so that's why we pray for Israel, to come to Christ. And for us, it means coming under the Lordship of Christ, who saves us and brings us into right covenant. But we must trust that Jesus is the one who saves us, who restores us, who can remove God's curse from us, who removes judgment. We must return to the Lord. That is, we must repent and believe that he is our Savior. And so while we, while we might have some amazing discussions about the finer details of Joel, those details mean nothing if we do not heed the ultimate message of Joel, which is to repent of our sin and to find salvation in Christ because the day of the Lord is coming in finality. And that is why our brother Joseph is kicking up and helping us with evangelism efforts. We are trying to be like Joel and remind people that they need Christ or death will come to them for all eternity. We are trying to bring grace to people We are not trying to condemn people. They're condemned already under God's wrath. We don't pronounce condemnation on anybody. We're trying to remove that from them by simply just delivering the gospel and letting God do his work. And so, Joel, this big message is very important that we understand it. And we not just get caught up in the tiny days and the dates to where we do nothing and just walk away from it because we're so perplexed by it. There was days of the Lord and there is one coming. Let me give some additional thoughts, and I, I, pray, I pray that you see this day of the Lord thread from creation all the way, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Just like you see salvation from the beginning into the end, I believe the day of the Lord is tucked in there all throughout the thread of Scripture in the redemption narrative. Or else, why would we need a Savior at the beginning? Okay? Now, I'm going to say one more thing about the day of the Lord. Let's make this connection between the Sabbath day, the promised land, and the day of the Lord. You're like, what do they have to do with each other? Let me say it again. The Sabbath day, the promised land to Israel, and the day of the Lord. You remember after God created the universe in six days, we see that he rested on which day? Seven. All right, you're with me. He rested because he was tired? No. The word rest just means to stop. In musical terms, when there's a rest on a music notation, it means you're stopping playing for just a second or however long it is. It means to cease. And so we say God rested all right, on the seventh day. And Israel was to rest. That was a day that was designated for them. It means, again, to stop working. And this Sabbath day was a holy day. And it was consecrated or dedicated to the Lord. It was a blessed day And that blessing came from the Lord. The Ten Commandments tell us this, okay? So it's not just a day, it's a blessed day. Tie that phrase together with the Sabbath day. It is a blessed day. And it was a sign to the Israelites, a sign that they participated in every week, a sign that signifies they were sanctified, which means to be set apart for God. They were his people, okay? It was also to serve as a day to remind them that God saved them from Egypt. And he gave them rest from their hard work when they were in slavery. Okay? So keep this blessed Sabbath day in mind. Jesus said that this day was made for men, not men for the day. Meaning God gave it to Israel to serve as a blessing for them. It was a day that they would stop work and enjoy creation with who? God. Because he had saved them. It's a blessed day to not work, to rest, 
to stop it all and spend time with God because he saved them. Okay? The Sabbath blessing. Later, when Moses was leading the Israelites in the wilderness, neither he nor that generation were able to enter the promised land because of their sins. Let's go from Sabbath day to promised land. Hebrews 3, chapter 3 and chapter 4. They teach us that this promised land was to be a land of blessing from God. You remember the Sabbath day? It's a blessed day from God. Now we're in the promised land, a land blessed by God for them. And this was called a land of rest. A land of rest. And God living with them. Just as the Sabbath was to be a blessed day of rest and a time when they reminisced about the salvation of God. So the Israelites of Moses' day, Hebrews tells us that they did not enter their rest, their Sabbath land, because of sin and because of unbelief. Now, pay attention, because the author of Hebrews just is an amazing expounder of Scripture. In chapter 4, verses 8 through 9, he says, They missed their day. You do not miss your day. Make sure that you do not miss your day of rest, which is to come. There's another day coming. And it says, this is our Sabbath rest. A blessing which is found only in Jesus Christ. And what is he getting at? Because the author of Hebrews ties together the Sabbath day with the promised land with the day of the Lord. He ties all three together. He's getting at the fact that the Sabbath was a blessed day, once again, to enjoy creation with God. The promised land was a land of blessing or rest, a Sabbath land, if you'll let me use that term, where God dwelled amongst the Israelites and they could enjoy his blessing and spend time with him and his presence away from Egyptian slavery. And so the author of Hebrews then invites us to find salvation in Christ because in doing so, we find rest in him, rest in him. That is to say, we will not be condemned, we will be delivered, we will be saved, and we will live forever with God in his rest, in the new creation, in the new heaven on earth, because he saved us. That day is coming. That's how Hebrews pieces together the Sabbath day, the Sabbath land, and the Sabbath in eternity. The Sabbath day, the Sabbath land, those are shadows, those are types of the Sabbath eternity. It is the final fulfillment, okay? Living with God on heaven, in heaven, on earth. We must not miss that day, Hebrews 4 tells us in chapter, in, in, uh, chapter 4, verses 8 through 9. The author pauses talking about that day for just a second, that day of rest, which is shown in the Sabbath land, which is shown in the Sabbath day. We must not miss that day. He stops, and then he goes through chapters 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and he shows us how all the Old Testament is about Jesus and how it all pointed to him as Savior and that he's the mediator of a new and better covenant. He's expounding the Old Testament and showing that Jesus is the one in whom we find our rest. Then Hebrews 10 picks right back up with with that urging us to find salvation in Christ. It says we are to cling to our confession of hope without wavering. That is to say we are to cling to Christ and never stop confessing him as Savior. Why? 
The author says, because that day is drawing near, that day of rest, the Sabbath rest, this eternal Sabbath day, which is called the day of Christ. So if you didn't know it, the Sabbath day, the promised land, those rests are meant to point forward to the day of the Lord, which points to our eternal rest, which we have already begun in Christ when we come to him for salvation. That is Christ in all of Scripture. Don't ever settle for a sermon that's just information about stuff and it doesn't point to Jesus. From Genesis, God created everything and the day that you eat, you will die. Seed of that day for judgment. But then given the Sabbath rest right away, these sinners are right from the beginning of creation to point to God knew they were going to sin. He knew there was going to be a need for a final rest to come. It was all there waiting to be unpacked. The day of the Lord when we enter rest forever with God. And so Hebrews goes to great lengths to tie all these together. Okay? And so when we read, when we're reading in Joel, what is going on? Talking about near, past, future? All right? Brothers and sisters, right now, I'll just say, let us pray for the day of the Lord to come and let us long for it. We have nothing to fear if we're in Christ concerning that day. It is a day of rejoicing for us that we will ever be with the Lord. We, we have already entered into that day. Christ came. That day has begun. And those who find Christ enter into that rest. So who can endure this day? Only those in Christ. If you don't know Christ, come to him to save you from the wrath to come because that day will not be pretty. Believe that he was the perfect God-man that he died in your place to suffer the wrath of God so that you could experience that day in a blessed way. Believe that he rose from the dead to give you life eternal in the new creation on that day. Believe that he's coming again to restore us and this planet and to bring a reckoning to those who continue to rebel against him. And so as we look at the final portion of this text, I know that the majority was spent on just trying to define that term from that day that we are to be aware of. Alas, for it is coming. The rest is going to go quickly. But Joel has just referenced the day of the Lord. The question remains, is this current mention of the day of the Lord, a past event, current, near future, a long-awaited final day of the Lord? Now, my mind might change, okay? At the moment, it seems like Joel is presently using the term the day of the Lord, to refer to what has just transpired. And I'll explain how I arrived at that conclusion. The locust invasion, all right, I believe he's referring to that as the day of the Lord, but he's also using the day of the Lord for what is soon to come and what is far to come. And it just depends on which part of Joel you're in. He's going to mention the day of the Lord again. And it seems like it's in reference to something on the very near horizon in chapter 2. And then he mentions it again and again. And now it seems like he's referring to an an end time thing. I'm still figuring this stuff out. And maybe you can help me. We'll get there and we'll get to those when we get to them. But for now, again, it seems like what we just read, that Joel's referring to the locust invasion at this point. That is to say, they are in the throes of the day of the Lord. They're already in the midst of the day of the Lord and it's still coming. Okay? And he's trying to get them to consider that something worse is on the horizon. It's coming in greater intensity. Much like the tribulation, it signifies that the day of the Lord is upon the world. Now as we read the rest of this passage, you're going to see the curses 
that have already come upon Israel in the land that God gave them. What was this land supposed to be? A land of blessing, a land of rest. But now it has become a land of curses and a land of stress. Okay? So while there's a sense in which the day of the Lord is on the near horizon, it can be said that Israel is already in the middle of the day of the Lord. The thought basically goes like this. Alas, the day of the Lord is near. It is coming. Well, how do you know, Joel? Look at what is happening to us. We're in the initial stages of it with the locust invasion and this drought. It's, it's like the cheating spouse who's been found out, and when they arrive home to face the music, they discover the locks have been changed. Though They are already deep in it, Right? even though they know they're, they're facing something more serious. Okay? It's an indicator of what's worse near and certain because they are in it. So we see Judah's tribulation, point two, the effects of the day of the Lord. The effects. Now, some of these effects we've already talked about, so this will go rather fast. Verse 16 states that the food has been cut off before their eyes. We know what that means. Crops and orchards have been devastated by the invading locust army. But Joel states that joy and gladness were also cut off from the house of, the, of our God, he says. So he's not just their God. He's Joel's God too. He's, prophet, he's God to both prophet, priest, and people. And so he says joy and gladness are cut off. Now that might be a synonym for wine. Just as grain was cut off, okay? Joy and gladness. It might be a synonym for wine since that was a sign of God's blessing. But we already know that the Israelites brought offerings of wine or libations, wine offerings, drink offerings to God. And we know that they could no longer bring these things to God. They couldn't bring these happy thank offerings to God. The vineyards have been destroyed. No blessing from God, no libations, no songs to sing, no joy, no gladness. Their food and drink are gone, but worse is that their, de- their relationship with God is in shambles. And that is the heart of the devastation. That's why these things keep getting mentioned over and over again. The worship life, the temple life, the, the, the old covenant uh, sa- uh, offerings that they're supposed to be doing have, can no longer be practiced. And to be in right relationship with God uh, was to reap blessings so that they could participate in these things. So let me say this. Your deepest need in life is not a solid income. It is not a great retirement plan. Your greatest need is not your physical health. It is not a roof over your head. It is not the approval of a boyfriend or girlfriend or the acceptance of friends. Your greatest need is not to have a great self-esteem. It is not getting the right people in political positions. Your greatest need in life is to forever be in right covenant with God Almighty. That is your greatest need, to be in unbroken relationship, fellowship with God. That's what Jesus' death and resurrection accomplished totally for us. We do nothing to help him. Our God needs no help in saving us. He's done the work that we cannot do. He's bridged the great divide for us from here to God. Verse 17 says, with the current devastation, right, continues on with this current devastation as the initial phase of the day of the Lord that is upon them. The seed lies shriveled in their casings. Get a picture of that. Now, the word casings actually means shovel. And so it's a peculiar phrase to translate as casings. But some people think this refers to the dirt clods that shovels make. Like if you were digging up seeds from the ground. Okay? But the point is that these seeds planted in the ground are dried up and shriveled. 
Some think this refers to the seed casing itself, but whatever. In either case, the seed is shriveled, which is the point. There's no moisture in the ground, and you cannot grow crops without moisture in the ground. Am I right? Okay. This indicates that more than locusts are a problem for them. There's a drought as well, which is why the storehouses are equally in ruin, which is why the granaries are broken down. These are places where seeds and food are kept. They're parallel statements in poetry, meaning to emphasize how bad things are. Uh, things are. It's, it's repetition. It's like, there's no food here. There's no food there. We got none anywhere. God's displeasure with Israel is more than evident. Verse 18 shows that even the animals are crying out. Even the animals. Remember that the Israelites were called to cry out to God. Here the animals are crying out. Israel is not crying out to God. The animals are. The animals are groaning in pain and hunger, and Israel has yet to do this. The statement shows that even the animals are not as torpid as Israel. It it serves as a severe rebuke to them. Look, even the animals are crying out, and you do not. The herds wander around looking for food. They're perplexed that they have no pasture. There's no grass to feed on while Judah's asleep. Wake up, Judah. The flocks of the sheep and the goats are even said to be suffering this day of the Lord, which lets us know that our sin doesn't just affect us. It affects creation. Because what was cursed when Adam sinned? Creation, the ground. And childbirth was going to be hard for Eve and all women after that. The world suffers because of sin. We are to be good stewards of it, not abusers, right? We're to be good stewards of it. While mankind might worship the planet and idolize it, that doesn't excuse us from caring for it like God mandated. It's not wrong to recycle. It's not wrong to care about pollution, right? You're not a liberal if you care for that. You're an image bearer of God, a steward of this planet. We need to care for creation and tend to it like we care about other spiritual matters in this world, like the sanctity of baby life, like keeping marriage as God intended it, because those are marriages a gospel picture. Why would we want that ruined? And living a godly, faithful, covenant-oriented life towards Christ, that means less sin, less pain in this world. One of the ways that we help this world is by living godly lives. And the more sin we bring to it, the more pain and suffering we bring to others and creation. Is it any wonder that honoring one's parents comes with the blessing of a longer lifespan as you listen to the wisdom of God? Sin kills, and it kills, and it destroys, and it takes life. It hurts creation. But back to the livestock. It's in bad shape. If the livestock is groaning, that means it's, it's getting closer to dying which means that not just grain and drink offerings are ruined, but now Israel is in jeopardy of having their other holy days and their other sacrificial rituals put in jeopardy. What sacrifices will they be able to offer for atonement for sin if the livestock is dying of hunger? Do you see what's going on? The judgment of God. Because things are so bad, Joel is crying out to God. He sees that they have defied God and the consequences are horrible. And it's going to get a lot worse, he's saying. Alas, for that day. It's already upon us in its initial stages. But like the tribulation before the Lord comes in final judgment, it is still coming. Alas. It's an indication something greater and finality is coming. And Joel says that fire has consumed the pastures. Fire. Flames have devoured the trees. It could be a literal fire blazed through here, but it also just might be a synonym for drought as well. Droughts scorch things, so do fire. 
the result is the same. So the instrument of punishment, you have to know, is secondary to the, to the result that God is bringing about. However he brings it about is secondary to the fact that he's bringing it about. Joel knows that only the Lord can save. And then verse 20 concludes, again, even the wild animals cry out to you. It is to God they are crying out. Scripture is using poetic language. It is giving human-like qualities to animals here. That's called anthropomorphism. Did I miss a phrase there? Anthropomorphism. I think I'm adding too many isms, all right? It is giving human traits to human entities. This is, again, to shame Judah for not crying out to God in their slumber. Why do the animals cry out? Because there's no riverbeds to drink from, which indicates a drought. They're all dried up. Fire has consumed the pastures. Again, it may be just a drought causing this condition or a fire that raged through the land. Nevertheless, devastation is at an all-time high, and it, can pale, it pales in comparison to the fullness of the day of the Lord. God's full judgment is coming lest they repent. Brothers and sisters, it looks and it seems like this book is nothing but warnings of wrath. And that can initially seem like a downer, like God is on a tirade. But is not God's warnings a huge measure of grace? He's calling people to awaken from their slumber in order to be rescued, in order that they might be blessed by God and not cursed and judged. Is that not kindness? I think we have God's warnings of impending judgment. I think we have those warnings confused with unloving acts or cruel words. They are not. We must view this as God's kindness in signaling all of humanity, to all of humanity, that grace and mercy can be found in God. The warning is for those who are far from God. The, the warning is to those who are defiant towards Him, that are rebellious towards their Maker and Creator. The warning is for their good and their ultimate joy. Can you see that in Joel? Yet as we see from other scriptures, that warning of impending judgment also means that for those who already know Christ as Savior, blessing is coming. The day of the Lord is not something for us Christians to fear. It's a consummation of our salvation. It's when we are glorified and perfected once and for all. It's when we see our Savior face to face in all his glory, as we sang earlier with that hymn. It's when we are glorified and see our Savior. It's when the new heavens and the new earth meet. It's when we get to dwell with God forever. That final day started when Christ came the first time. It will be wrapped up when he returns. Only when we come to Jesus in that way can we know that our eternal Sabbath is secured and that the day of the Lord will be a day of radical rejoicing on our part. For those that do not awaken from their sinful and deliberate slumber, alas, for the day of the Lord is near. It is coming with all certainty and the full backing of God Almighty and nothing and no one will be able to stop his devastation. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we summon 